I'm Paddy Huey of Edgehill University and that was the sound of Ambleside United Reserves playing AFC Carlisle as captured by Paul Whitty, Professor of Composition at Oxford Brookes University where he is also the Director of the Sonic Art Research Unit. Paul has been recording the sound of grassroots football for many years. He says, I have been making sound recordings of my experience as a youth team coach, as a spectator at matches in the North Berks and other grassroots adult leagues, as a groundsman marking out pitches and as a member of a club committee. In this podcast, we hear Paul's recordings, and he talks about the panoply of sounds that you only hear at the grassroots level of the game. How does the wind impact your work? You know, whenever you go out and do your compositions and your and your capture and sound, how does how does how does that impact on on what you're doing? Um, I think you know it, it depends. You know, usually, obviously, I do it at weekends. So, because I like to, whether I'm recording a live match or recording, you know, a, a football pitch where nothing's happening, um, I like to go at the, the at the right time, the time when a football pit match could be taking place. Um, but yeah, I, I cycle around. And a lot of what I do is quite local. So um, I only really I take the attitude that my method should be that I only do it when I come across football pitches, really. Or I don't I don't go too far out of my way. I mean, I could take it very seriously and together a research project visiting you know a thousand football pitches dotted around the globe i guess you know if i was to apply to the ahrc or something like that but um i prefer just to kind of encounter things some of the best football matches i've ever seen i've just wandered you know wandered into in a village or somewhere and you know there's nothing better i think than kind of hearing that sound of the match taking place you might hear the ball a ball being kicked because that's quite a low frequency sound yeah which would reach you first and then you begin to hear people shouting or something like that, and you come across it. I, I love that kind of feeling of just happening across this performative event, you know, and, on a field. And are you always tooled up? Do you always have something in your pocket to record something? 
I've always got something. I've got a small sort of handheld Tascam machine, which isn't much bigger than a sort of 1980s mobile phone, really. So uh, it's quite, it's quite, um, it's quite subtle. Well, I, I don't really like showing up with my kind of, you know, big, you know, blimp. Um, yeah, like Gene Hackman uh, in the conversation. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, that's not that's not a subtle way to go about things because then everyone starts looking at you. They think, "Why are you recording? Are you a journalist?" You know. Whereas if you if you go just with your kind of your small handheld recorder, no one really knows whether you're kind of just watching the match or checking texts or or listening, you know, or recording. And I think that's that's better because I don't want you know. As with any kind of observational activity, you don't want those being observed to change their behaviour because you're trying to you're trying to capture that kind of brilliant kind of natural moment of people being absolutely in the game. Um, yeah. Um, do you go in with any expectation? You know, as a journalist, I have you know, as we're recording this, I was taught as a journalist to have an angle and everything. So something um, something different might emerge out of the process of doing the conversation. But is do you go into these with a kind of aim of what you're going to capture? I, I try not to. Um, I, I mean, I look, you know, the, the two kind of, um, I suppose, writers who I'm really interested in who inform my method would be George Perec, who tended to just sit at cafes in Paris or wherever he was and note down what he experienced, what he saw, what he heard. And then also Michel Deserto, who talks a lot about how you get to know a place, particularly cities. You know, there's his um, famous... Uh, chapter about walking in the city and, and the best way to understand the city is to get down on the street and walk through it so I think you know I, I try to just approach places slowly you know if I hear a match taking place I, I walk slowly towards it make recordings as I go try to experience it um, and, and you know and obviously you get you know sometimes you get these fantastic moments where you come across something extraordinary I think one of my favorites is at our, our local club Wallingford Town uh, who at the time I made the recording were playing in the North Barks League, which is kind of a step seven, step eight, I think, league. Um, and there was just this brilliant moment where the referee didn't give a penalty. It looked like a you know a professional foul. It looked like something that was worthy of a red card or at least a penalty. And one of the spectators just simply walked then up and down the pitch, talking to the referee for the next 15 minutes on the sideline, just wouldn't give it up. And everyone behind him, you know, there were about 50 of us there who were just saying, mate, mate, just leave it now. It's gone. He's not going to go back to that moment where he didn't give the penalty, you know. So I think there's just there's these sort of beautiful moments where people get so engaged in the game that they they um, they, they lose themselves. And I think that's, that's the kind of beauty of it. And I certainly find as a coach that I love that kind of 90 minutes of being lost in the game. Um, I sometimes turn, I, I must say I turn too much into a spectator and end up ball watching, which is fatal. Because I should really be watching what my back four are doing, you know, um, rather than just watching where the ball is. But I, yeah, I think the you get drawn in, and I love that fact of just getting drawn in, and your attention gets kind of um, drawn to some particular aspect of the game or particular players, the way they behave, the way they talk to each other, that kind of thing. There was ages ago. There was a, a we were just talking about Twitter, weren't we? Before I started hitting record. And uh, there was a great uh, from some years ago. I think Peter Hooten from the farm sort of set it up, and it was. Things you hear in Sunday League. It was a hashtag, and <laughs> and one of my favourite Merseysideisms is 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 in 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 Sunday League, or any kind of under football is a a, a galumphin centre back who just shouts from the top of his voice, "Get into these! These are shite." <laughs> I don't know whether that exists anywhere else in Britain. These are shite. <laughs> no, that, that's great because. Um... 
Um, I mean, one of my favourites uh, in our in our league, and I think it's probably pretty universal, is they don't want it. Oh yeah, I mean, it, there's nothing more hilarious than that. And then, of course, someone says, "Yeah, we do want it," you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or it's the it's a, the, the the lad who screams, uh, "It's you, you know, somebody maybe your left back's not having any on it." Uh, he doesn't fancy it, lad. And I love that. And I think, but what's interesting and something that I will be looking into in a bit more of a kind of, um, I suppose, coherent way is I am looking for kind of regional differences between the talking on the pitch. And one of the reasons for that is I I grew up in the West Country and we always called the head the Swede. So on the Swede, on the Swede, mate, you know, it's always that kind of thing, you know. And um, I, I went back there recently. Some of my family still live there, but it, it seemed that kind of the football talk, certainly in the Macron Exeter and Devon League, was much more estuary. You know that that kind of West Country twang seemed to have gone. So I think that's certainly something I'd really like to investigate, and also looking at how it affects the you know the women's game as well. So looking at how how the talking might differ in the women's game regionally and so on. I think it's it's definitely something. It's a rich oral culture. And actually, a lot of it will be lost. So the kind of things you're saying about hearing on Merseyside, you know, is that something that still happens, or is that is that a phrase that's going to die out and it's only remembered by, you know, men of our age, men of a certain age who experienced football in the 70s and 80s as a, as a kid? You know, I don't know. So I think it's important. It's, it's a really rich verbal culture which I think deserves some attention. I was talking to Danny about um, he he chose James Brown's biography um, because he he thought that it, it t- told him a lot sociologically about the role that sport plays and you know the formation of of identity and the formation of friendship and stuff like that. But he also said is that the move towards small sided football and games that are played indoors, for instance, away from you know, we've seen eleven aside grassroots football slowly 
uh, disappearing altogether. Will that change the sound of football and how we communicate one another in gyms and in you know 4G pitches surrounded by cages and nets? Yeah, I, th- I think that has a I think that has a massive difference. Um, and I think one of the reasons is obviously you know any kind of indoor arena is very resonant. You know, it's not usual you'll be playing with five a side against a, a you know with a with spectators. So spectators soak up a lot of sound. If you've got if you've got an empty gym, it's five five. The noise of literally of your your shoes on the floor is going to be enough. So it's actually very hard to talk. Yeah. Whereas on a on a, on a field, you know, in or a park or a recreation grounds, um, in an open space, the talking is is something that can happen. One of the things I'm really interested in, though, actually, in terms of how the talking can be limited by situations, is traffic noise. So I've visited quite a lot of pitches um, in Oxfordshire near the A34, which is a big trunk road yeah, yeah. running north and south. Um, there's one pitch in particular at Drayton um, where it's an onslaught. I mean, the pitch is about 150 metres away from the A34 and it's an onslaught of traffic noise. And I have, I've been to matches there. You, it's hard to hear the players talking. And I've talked to some of the spectators, some of the sort of locals watching the match. I said, look, don't you find this difficult? Um, and they say, oh, we're used to it. So actually, Drayton have got a very good home record because I think away teams can't communicate. You know, there's no point shouting "man on." You know, you can't. No one, no one's going to hit. No one's going to hear that. So whereas I think Drayton have a, they must have a very finely attuned hearing based on you know frequency of the, frequencies of the A34 um, and the commands of their teammates. I don't know. I mean, it's it's certainly interesting. But five aside doesn't have that same verbal culture. It tends to be a lot more personal, doesn't it? Yeah. Because you use people's names a lot more, I think, maybe, and you tend to be mates rather than just playing in a squad. Um, yeah, I think it has a different verbal culture. But that's certainly also interesting. Yeah. It's. Have you tried to record like basketball or volleyball or other sports that predominantly take place inside? Do you know what? I haven't. I mean, it's curious that I'm. I've had quite a lot of people have mentioned to me that this is something that you know could move across sport, certainly grassroots sport. Um, and I think I am interested in that, but I think I have such a kind of obsession with going to football <laughs> that I can't quite escape that. You know, I wouldn't have the same engagement with a basketball, you know, match yeah. um, as I have with a football match. Um, it, it's difficult. I've always had that problem. I can't really commit to other sports. I, I kind of go through phases when I'm, I'm sort of into it, and then. It just drifts away because really, I just I love football. You know, I love the culture of the game and the sound of the game. I'm just wondering if, like, you know, I played a lot of basketball when I was a kid, but mm. I was wondering whether it would just be a mixture of like squeaking trainers on wooden boards and the occasion. Like, for instance, like volleyball, they, they, they tend to erupt into a massive kind of noise every every time a point is won. You know, especially Latin. So, what, what, what all you get would be like squeaking on on a kind of polyurethane floor, punctuated every ninety seconds with groups of people just shouting randomly. Well, that's right. I mean, also, I guess in basketball, there's there's much less space, so the the, the sound making is happening in a much tighter area, and there is obviously that squeaking of kind of trainers on you know gym floors, that kind of thing, and the bouncing of the ball. You know, that's a that's a really resonant sound. So. That would take up a lot of the bandwidth, I think, in that situation. How, I did have a, a student who was a hockey player and did a lot of work around hockey, outdoor hockey. Yeah. And, um, of course, one of the absolute classic sounds is the sound of the hockey ball hitting the sideboards. Yeah. I mean, that's a beautiful sound. Yeah. Uh, I really like that. And, you know, the clash of hockey sticks, kind of, you know, the um, 
the ball being caught by the goalkeeper or deflected by the goalkeeper from the pads. There's some great sound. So I, th- I think if I spent enough time, I would my interest in sound would get the better of me. And whether it was football or not, I would be kind of fascinated by that. Yeah, It's like when the, the, Tom Waits was asked for his favourite sounds and he produced, I can't remember how many there are, 20 or so. And I think one, number 15 or 16 was a ball game on the radio. Yeah. And yeah. and I still, you know, my my mates go are kind of think I'm a bit mad because if 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 it's a choice between going to a pub to watch or or somebody's house to watch a Gaelic football game on a Sunday or right. listen to it on RTE on my smart speaker or on me as it used to be the the old long wave, I'll take that all the time because I think you get much more feeling of the atmosphere of a big match than you do with it being sanitized across TV. I completely agree with that. I mean, I've written a bit about the experience of kind of growing up in mid-Devon listening to football on the radio. And, um, you know, football was always, when I was, it was always somewhere else, miles away. So this idea of kind of tuning in was kind of brilliant. And, of course, you get not only the kind of sounds of the, the match, but you also get the sound of the, the radio sound, the sound of the speaker and so on. So it's kind of a really... Um, a really kind of beautiful sounding experience. And of course, in the evenings with medium wave or long wave, yeah. the sound comes the sound comes and goes. Yeah. So, you know, if something happens, the crowd roars and you've got no idea what's gone on because there's just distortion everywhere. There. So um, it's really, really difficult to deal with, I think, um, in terms of telling what's going on, but the texture of it is beautiful. Oh, nice. Really lovely. Have you, have you done professional sport as well? What's the difference between professional sport and grassroots sport? Well, the, the thing about professional sport is I am really interested in, you know... I'm oh, sorry, professional de- football, sorry. Yeah, yeah, I think it really interested in dealing with the kind of the talking in professional football and actually the fact that things might be going on behind closed doors would be really interesting to make recordings of that. To actually, because, of course, you know, what the players say to each other, the way they deal with things professionally um, on the pitch, we, you, you can't hear it. It's not part of the sounding culture unless you're at the match. You know, so the mediated experience is interesting. I, I gave a presentation at the last um, football collective conference about the sounds of a, um, a kind of highlights package of a Leeds v Reading game because I'd been to the match and so I thought I, what I would do is kind of compare those sounding experiences. And of course, you know, the mediated experience is, is sort of hilarious because you hear the ball being struck, but only within a kind of 15 metre radius of the microphones behind the goal. So the middle of the pitch is like this strange land where you don't hear anything that's actually happening. You see action, but you don't hear it. Um, and I know that stadiums can be like that, but you always get a sense. You get a sense of the air vibrating. You're there. You're kind of part of the experience. But I mean, there's nothing better though than hearing a you know a beautifully struck shot hitting the net or you know cracking against the crossbar, um, and that that you still get even on highlights packages. Um, uh, but also in, in real life as well. Yeah, I love that. That metallic ching when yeah. a ball goes in exactly the corner of yeah. a of a goal and hits that sort of back stanchion that they now have. It's oh, a yeah, crisp this, this ping. I was really interested by that because the new goals all seem to, they have this kind of um, metal tube, don't they? Which yeah. runs around the bottom of the net, kind of anchoring the net down. And of course, when the ball hits the back of the net, that rises up and then hits the ground. So that's that's the kind of that's the standard sound now of a goal being scored. I have to say though, the, the, the thing I would like to hear again is um, the sound of Trevor Brooking scored a goal against Hungary in the qualifiers for um, Spain '82. I remember this very distinctly, and it stuck in the kind of corner of the stanchion. This goal, and I'd love to have been there to hear that sound or recorded that sound. Because so presumably, yeah, presumably that sound is a sound that 
starts but then stops immediately. Yeah. Yeah, There's no like resonance. It got wedged in the kind of, you know, the stanza. It's beautiful, yeah. <laughs> I'm we've probably all we've probably all experienced that, you know, hitting a ball into uh, into the bushes or something like that. Yeah. On the on the on the BBC show that I listened to that you sent me, you ask yourself that question of the when goalkeepers kick the soil off their studs on a goalpost, and then did that sound differently when you had leather studs on a wooden post? And what would that yeah. sound like? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm really. Interested. I suppose one of my real interests is in sort of sound archaeology and thinking about how our soundscapes have changed, which of course is fascinating at the moment with the changes as a result of COVID-19 um, and the way our everyday soundscapes have changed. But I think particularly that was about a match that was held at a village called Oving, who have a, one of the oldest cup competitions in the country. It's been running since the 1870s, I think. So I start and, and on the same pitch, other than I think there were a couple of seasons where it was elsewhere locally. So I started really thinking about, you know, each iteration of that final of that Oving cup competition being a kind of, you know, another another layer of sounding. So and then thinking back to, you know, what that would have sounded like 100 years ago, 120 years ago. Yeah, and I think, you know, those kind of classic sounds, you know, we all know that sound of the goalkeeper tapping their studs. You know, there's probably no mud in it. It's just a kind of habit, isn't it? It's kind of like bouncing the ball before you serve in tennis or something like that. You know, it's like, you know. Um, but I guess in the old days, getting, you know, mud out of leather boots must have been a, a trial, I would have thought. So, you know. Did the sound of a ball being kicked was that different in previous generations? So if you're wearing a you know a pair of like Dixie Dean style steel toe cap, nineteen thirties boots hitting an old ball with a lace up ball which was wet with rain, 
Does that sound different to a pair of Nike Mercurial Vapors? <laughs> I mean, it's got to be, hasn't it? It's got to be. I mean, I think what, what it would have been is there would have been lower frequencies because um, the ball would have been heavier, boots would have been heavier, you know, the materials were, were kind of denser in some ways. So you'd have got a, it'd have had a proper thud. I mean, the, you know, hearing a ball kicked on a you know, Paris Recreation ground now has a great kind of thud and it really cuts through, you know, if it bounces on a hard pitch. But um, yeah, it would, have been a, it would have been a really different sound. I mean, how you would measure that? Because the only evidence we really have for it would be through kind of verbal accounts or, um, you know, through media. And, you know, then you'd be dealing with the difference in microphones and microphone response and those kinds of things. But, yeah, it must have been a very different sounding game. And, of course, the speed and density of it would have been different. I often kind of speculate about, you know, what's the difference between the sound of a 4-3-3 and the sound of a 3-5-2. Because, you know, the, the sound is different because the, the, the players are, are positioned differently on the pitch. The spaces between them are different. Um, and I think one of the things I'm really interested in in my kind of sound work is the kind of is looking as closely as you can at something. As, as Perrick says, until it seems absurd. I mean, anyone outside would think, well, this is a joke. It's like a, it's a comedy sketch. You're kind of looking for the sound difference in sound between 4-2-3-1 and 4-4-2. But there is a difference. I mean, there must be a difference. Well, whenever because you said that in that podcast, I was, I was, uh, I was, I was in- instantly interested in the uh, the two three five formation. You know, the really old formation. Yeah. You know, the WM for or MW formation, where you've That's got right. where you've got five forwards and yeah. five people back. There must be a completely different change in sound in the final third than there is in your own back third. It, it would be it would be completely different. I mean, the back third would be abandoned basically. <laughs> You know, I, mean, I know we often get that now with teams pressing high or whatever it might be. But, um, you know, the, the, the personnel was so sparse. And we don't know, what we don't know is we don't know anything about tracking back. I mean, did forwards see it as their responsibility to come back or did they actually leave it to the backs? I've just been rereading um, Jonathan Wilson's um, Inverting the Pyramid. Which That's is a great, great book. Yeah. Great book, great account of um, yeah, football tactics. And looking at, there was an account of the first um, international between Scotland and England. And I think Scotland were playing. Uh, what were they playing? They, they had. I think they had five up front or six up front. Whereas England, England were going with the conventional seven. I think so. You know. Uh, <laughs> so obviously that game sounded different. And I think I get the idea that the players were much more tightly clustered together. Certainly the forwards. So there was this idea that there was a someone was a bit more like rugby league. You know, exactly. Someone dribbles. Yeah. Someone takes the ball, dribbles. They get tackled or dispossessed, then the next player comes and tries to collect the ball and dribble on. So it's a little bit more like that, where the players are much tighter knit, um, as opposed to our kind of modern day game, where often you know you might have a ball, your centre back has the ball, and your left your left forward might be you know eighty metres away over yeah. on the other far touchline, you know, as opposed to this game where I think everyone was probably much tighter together. Yeah, it, I often wonder as well. Do you think that? punditry and our increased exposure to the upper echelons of the elite game influences what young people you coach an under 19 team as you say mm-hmm. uh, or, or you know further down like underage teams has the kind of vocabulary of modern football punditry mm-hmm. and modern football tactics eked into what players say to one another I think it has I think I was thinking about this the other day and one of the things that really struck me is my, my team don't talk to each other very much on the pitch. They do a bit. There are one or two of them are a bit more vocal, but they don't. And I think that's because the football that they generally experience is a football in which you don't hear the players talking to each other in that way. What you see 
is you see the coach shouting at the players or kind of directing them from the bench. You know, someone like, um, I remember watching Conte um, in a World Cup recently, absolutely livid, you know, telling his players exactly what to do, obsessively kind of um, trying to rearrange their positions defensively while they were playing. And I think so the expectation that they will organise themselves and they will verbally kind of um, instruct each other is much less than perhaps it was when I was playing football in the in the kind of 80s. My goalkeeper is very vocal, um, but he, t- he tends to give qualitative information <laughs> rather, rather than kind of analytical information, which would be rather more useful, you know. Um, so I, th- I think definitely they're influenced by it. And of course, th- there have been some interesting discussions recently about... Um, you know, we talk about pressing or keeping a high line, all these kinds of things. But actually, you know, and we think of that as being kind of uh, a modern way of talking about the game. But we've always talked about that. You know, it's just a slight difference in language. But I definitely think there's very little talking on the pitch in a lot of games I see. Do you think that's because, do you think that's because the, the kind of coaching environment is that it's much more done with drills and you've got this kind of Guardiola or Cruyffization of the game where... You know, you divide the pitch up into sections and in each section everybody knows exactly what they have to do in that section. So a lot of the spontaneity in the game is is coached out and therefore you don't need to communicate with one another. That It's almost like you're running through a series of plays that you've already done somewhere else before you've come to that game. Yeah, well, um, that actually, in, in terms of the professional game, what really interests me in that, I mean, I, I'm a Leeds United fan. I won't um, make any apologies for that. Um, and watching Bielsa... Um, and the way that he trains has been really interesting because obviously in his training sessions, he runs through very detailed scenarios. And I know other coaches do too, but I just have seen examples of this. And there was a very good example of a, a move um, which finished with a Luke Ayling volley in training. And I then saw it recreated in a match almost exactly as it had been. And, and you know, so what I did wonder, you know, what is the situation with the players there? Do they say we're going to do? It can't be a situation where they know they're going to do that because it's it's too football's too complicated a game to arrive at a point if it's not a free kick or a set piece where you can say right now now our cent, our right centre back has the ball we're going to do X move which we practiced in training that can't work like that so it must just be about them their expectations are that if the ball is in a certain zone with a certain player um, this is your your position has to be here. I, mean, I remember listening to Brian Clough talking about getting Martin O'Neill to run up and down the pitch, you know, <laughs> doing doggies or something, I think he called it, and saying, you know, you just have to do it. You just have to do it. And one time out of 10, you'll arrive in the box at the same time as the ball does and you'll score. You know, so I don't know whether it's that, where there's a kind of lot of slippage and kind of wastage of that kind of energy, or whether it simply is that they're so finely attuned to knowing where they should be on the pitch because they've done it in training, that that spontaneity is gone. I'm not, I'm not sure and I think that that feeds down into the youth game in that youth players kind of expect someone to be in a certain position. They don't say, they don't talk about overlapping or they just expect the overlap to happen. So I think, you know, definitely there needs to be more talk on the pitch, certainly certainly amongst my team. I encourage that, yeah. 